My guest today is the general manager EMEA for Highspot. Prior to that, he had several leadership roles in companies like DocuSign, Yext, and Oracle. Described by a colleague as the go-to senior executive when aligning with other customer executives due to his ability to influence his gravitas and his coaching both before and after each meeting. He's an excellent leader inspiring with the right mix of charisma, authority, empathy to motivate high-performing commercial teams to succeed. Other colleagues have said that his impact on the enterprise division has been fantastic. Some of the best initiatives in their business unit have come from his ideas and leadership. He is described as a fantastic leader with natural charisma that drives alignment of teams around him across countries and cultures. Andy Champion, you're very welcome to the podcast. Good morning, Paul. Thank you so much. A lot of glowing. Uh, by the way, I only picked out a tiny a fraction. In fact, what I found when I was looking at them was that I had to just take the first line from deep, deep recommendations, and then there was so many of them. What I noticed was that there was a trend in there, and a lot of it was around motivation, charisma, and ability to get the most out of people. Where do you think that comes from in you? Well, firstly, I'm, I'm hugely humbled by what people have said. Um, I, I, I hope that I live up to those glowing words. And certainly that's something deep within me, right, is, is uh, a desire to be that strong leader, to be the best version I can of myself for my people. So where does it come from? I, I think that, you know, I, I have a view on leadership that, that um, I'm here to serve. Right. And that's probably something that was reinforced uh, right back uh, after I left university at Sandhurst. Uh, and the motto of Sandhurst is, is to serve to lead. Uh, and, and so I think that servant approach to leadership is something that's stuck with me, uh, stuck with me throughout. I'm not there to have, you know, always be the brightest person in the room. In fact, my job as a leader is not to be the brightest person in the room. My job is very much to facilitate the conversations and and uh, and help drive that outcome that we're all seeking. So I think a lot of it comes from perhaps the past experience, but also my views in terms of um, what leaders are there to do. Mm. Now, I'm curious about that because I don't think most people are born with that understanding of what leadership is and what great leadership is. Where do you think yours comes from? What were the, some of the early influences that have, have led you to that? Well, for sure, you know, I, I touched on it, my, my time in the military, right? Uh, that was formative for me. I was in my early 20s um, and, you know, I came straight out of university, went straight to Sandhurst. Uh, then it was a seven month course that taught you the basics of being uh, a leader in the British military. Um, uh, and then shortly after that, I was posted to Northern Ireland in the early 90s. Uh, it was still a very troubled part of our country uh, with two communities that that basically um, were really struggling to understand each other, had deeply held views that were generations old. Um, and that was impacting the ability of, of, of people to live, you know, their daily lives, right? Uh, and so I was thrust into the middle of that, you know, early 20s uh, with uh, a platoon of, of 30 guys. I was in the infantry, so it was all men. 
and we were um, we were there to help the police do their job. And I got to go to some of the most troubled areas, West Belfast, South Armagh. I spent a lot of time around Newry, where um, you know the 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 police weren't always welcome, right? And we were there to help keep them safe and and provide public order so that people could go about their daily lives. And that was a huge responsibility, right? I'd never led teams of, of, of people of that size. You know, I, sure, I played a lot of sport. And so that, that collaboration in sport, you know, team sports, rugby uh, is, is there. Everyone has their particular role. But I'd not done it in a genuinely a life or death situation. So I was very fortunate. I had a, an incredible uh, platoon sergeant um, who, you know, was 16 years into his career. Uh, Sergeant Sasslice, I still remember to this day the first conversations I had with him. Uh, and we hit it off from the start. And um, he really helped me understand what good leadership looked like. Uh, and so I think, you know, that was a very first and early influence for me. I think then, you know, after I came out of the army and I went into the commercial world, I started out in um, sales recruitment. Um, and you know, having led large teams, you know, up, up to a hundred and sort of 120 people uh, in the army, I was then an individual contributor. And my job, my first job coming out of the army was effectively to be a BDR for a sales recruitment company. So I was making 100 dials a day. That was my target. Dials, not connects. Um, and uh, there was no internet. So it's not like you go on LinkedIn and find out people's titles, people's roles. You had to do that by looking in things like the Compass Directory in yellow pages, scanning the job uh, sections in, in local newspapers. Uh, and it was really humbling, right? It really, it really helped ground me and provided me with, um, with some commercial experience. And then I think as I took on various different roles and grew my career, um, there was a bit of trial and error. So applying certain principles, seeing what worked, what, what didn't. Um, and I think that, you know, that then magnified those early influences, right? About not having to be the smartest guy in the room, about uh, being open and humble and transparent. Um, so I think it's been a progressive um, journey for me, like it is for many people. But I was so, so fortunate to have those early influences, you know, key people, like I say, like Satellite that, that really helped guide and shape me. Okay. Uh, just listen, there's so much there, Andy, I want to talk about. Let's go back to Northern Ireland and I'll start there and explore with you. What I'm really curious about is what you learned about yourself and about humanity by being putting into that kind of a cauldron. And then you mentioned your sergeant lessons you got from him. I'd like to understand that. And then what I, <laughs> I'm also fascinated by is you're now at the end of a phone as a BDR and you're talking to people who are, we, we, we've all been through this where you're getting, where did you get my number from? And that kind of, sometimes, sometimes boarding on nasty and party must be kind of going, you know, the, the, the soldier in you, the, 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 that individual must be kind of wanting to reach down the phone and strangle them and kind of call them. Just that frustration, I can't imagine what that tension must be like. Let's go, let's go, but let's go back to Northern Ireland. What did you learn? about yourself because it's one thing to go through an academy and learn mm -hmm. about leadership there's another thing to be thrown in at the deep end and 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 also about what about you learned about humanity in in that experience 
God, we could fill a whole hour with, uh, with that one topic, right? <clears throat> um, I think that um, one, one of the things I, I learned uh, about myself throughout that journey was um, that there are depths available to all of us um, that are beyond what we mentally might be aware of. So what do I mean by that? Physically, mentally, we're actually much, much stronger than, than perhaps some of our beliefs uh, would, would somehow sometimes indicate, right? Sometimes that belief of, I can't climb that mountain or I can't make, I'm, you know, I'm nervous about that call. I, I need to get my boss in to join, you know, to join me on it. Actually, you know, when you're, when you're put in situations where you have little option but to push through, but to figure out the answer, the, the depths of reserves, as I say, mentally and physically, they're in all of us. But traditionally, most of our day-to-day -day lives don't require us to, to, to draw upon them. So I think that was certainly, you know, one of the things that I learned, not only about myself, but other people. You know, um, people have this innate ability to astonish and surprise you. And, it, and it's such a fantastic thing. Now, sometimes they can surprise you in a positive way, sometimes in a, in a less positive way. But those depths, the strength of character, physically and mentally, are, are way beyond what any of us think. Uh, and then, you know, one of the other things I learned very clearly was the importance of being able to lead by example, right? Um, we're incredibly privileged. Some of us are incredibly privileged to, to lead teams and lead people. Um, it, it's a, a position of deep responsibility. Um, but one of the principles that I've always uh, tried, to, uh, tried to, to live by is never to ask anybody in my team to do anything that I'm not prepared to do myself. Doesn't mean I have to do it better than them. Um, certainly doesn't mean I have to tell them how to do it. Again, that's not my job. But I've at least got to be able to be willing to do it myself, right? So, um, you know, asking people to uh, lead a patrol, right, into a, a difficult or challenging area, we had to do it do that all the time and typically we worked in um, teams of 12 that were split into sub teams of four and within a team of four typically there will be one person leading the way right at the front and realistically that's probably the one of the more dangerous um, areas to be right and and if you think about I never served in uh, in in the Middle East but if you think about some of uh, the uh, IEDs and some of the horrific injuries that some of our armed forces suffered uh, from bombs that were buried in the ground. Right, typically it's the lead person that is is at most risk. So again, as a leader, I needed to be prepared on occasion to be that lead guy, to be the point man at the front of the patrol, leading the way. Typically, it's not a great place as a leader uh, a leader to stand because you you have less perspective of what's going on around you. Sometimes you need to be prepared to do that. And sometimes you need to be prepared to do that when um, the danger is perhaps slightly higher. Because again, you're leading by example and you're setting the tone and you're saying, guys, I'm in this with you. I'm prepared to do everything you do and give all of myself, um, you know, for us and for the team. That's about respect building, I presume. Yeah, I think, you know, respect is something that you earn, right? You can't demand it. Um, uh, but you can create an environment where um, where you have the ability to earn it. 
Yeah. Yeah. What would you say though to in in military units? It's it's kind of self-selecting. Like you weren't picked off the street for that role. Where in sales, it's not so self-selecting. People are put into situations that they didn't prepare for and they they didn't train for. And now you're helping them discover that they can go further than they believe they could before. How do you translate that, what you've learned in the military, to civilian life for people who just wouldn't be literally battle-hardened as well as figuratively battle-hardened? How do you help them discover that they can go further than they've ever believed possible? I think the parallels are pretty acute. And and I would say, actually, I think that not all of us, but some of us do self-select into, into sales, right? Um, not, not all, but, you know, we make conscious decisions to further our careers. Um, and, and some people, uh, do extremely well at it, uh, over many, many, many years. And of course, like anything in life, you build up a bank of experience. Um, and so, you know, what I would say is much like in my early military career, I had a platoon sergeant who was able to help guide, steer and influence me and help me develop as a, as a young officer. I think in many ways, um, there are some parallels there with great first line managers, right? Uh, and second line and third line managers to help give people the confidence and to create a, a safe environment where people are prepared to take an educated chance people are prepared to try something new. Um, and sometimes that's going to work. And do you know what? Sometimes it, it, it might not work and we might fall over, you know, a bit like riding a bike, we might fall off and graze on our knees and that's okay. You know, the job of a sales manager is, is to create that self safe environment where people can make those choices and where they, they can learn from them when, when perhaps they don't go perfectly. Uh, and I think, you know, that's a little bit like, the relationship that I had with my platoon sergeant. I was learning about leadership on the job. Um, and, you know, sometimes he would guide. Um, sometimes he would say, no, boss, you really don't need to do it like that, you know, and be a little bit more directive. And sometimes he would allow things to, to, to play out. Uh, the interesting dynamic there, of course, was that technically he reported into me. But one of the, you know, one of the, um, one of the things I um, realized really, really early on was I had so much to learn from this guy, 16 years of experience in the military. I had to, you know, I would be foolish to ignore that. And I saw some young officers that unfortunately did that. They, 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 their, their egos got in the way. Mm. That actually, there's a parallel with that because you were in a position of leadership in the military. Now you come out and you're sitting at a desk with compass and clippings and what's that talk me through that what's that like to go from that position where you are i know you're not always in control you're in the military but they, but they train you for those situations of dealing with the ambiguity and lack of control and to, to i guess put boundaries around that and now you're in this at this desk what's what's going through your mind um Firstly, what does good look like? Um, you know, what am I, what, what, what am I, what am I expected to deliver and how am I expected to deliver 
and how do I get to that point um, as quickly as possible, right? Because um, I, I, you know, I want to do a job. It's important to me. Um, I'm, I'm very internally motivated. So for me, there's there's a strong driver within me that is always pushing me to be better at what I do. I don't have to be perfect, but you know, I, I try and make progress every single day, little small increments here and there. Uh, um, but that's an internal driver. So for me, that came out loud and clear. It's like, you know, how do I master this job? How do I go from a guy that's been in the military that kind of knows how to um, you know, do a foot patrol around West Belfast? How can I then get to that same level of competence in my new role, which is about engaging with, typically it was sales leaders, to identify where they had open roles, where we as a recruitment company could put candidates in front of them. Um, and then how do you break that down? How do you break that down into the different tasks? You know, gathering the data, getting the information, the names, the phone numbers, getting an understanding of the business. Nowadays, right, we can go on the internet and we can look up highspot.com and you can understand within, hopefully our website will help you understand within 30 seconds what we do websites weren't there so so you never quite knew what the business was um that that you were calling into you never quite had that same insight into the person that you were going to speak to um but what you could do is you could structure your day there were certain things that you could control i could control what time i arrived at the office in the morning and whether I was the first person to get at the newspapers or not. And that had, I found, an impact on my ability to drive success. Because if I got there first, I could get the clippings and, and I could then be not, not necessarily competitive with my other internal colleagues, but competitive with other firms out there, with other people like me doing that job, right? Yeah. And I think when you, when you play that forward to, to today and you look at the you know, the, the exciting but demanding role that our SDRs, BDRs have. It's a similar analogy. How do you stand out from a crowd in a world where, you know, there's there's a lot of cold outreach going on, whether you know, by video, by email, or, or whatever channel it might be? How could I stand out from the crowd? How could I be that person that got in early ahead of everybody else and had a meaningful, thoughtful approach to the conversation that, that, that I wanted to have? Yeah. Sounds so, to me, sorry, Andy, I didn't mean to cut across you. You were going to say? No. So I was saying that, you know, it was a humbling um, experience for me uh, oh. going from a place where um, I was doing a reasonable job and, 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 and hopefully my guys that I served with would, would say, you know, that I, I served them well to going to a net new role where I knew very little, where I had no frame of reference, where, where I didn't understand in the early days, at least, what it took to be successful. Yeah. What I'm curious about is where you go from a position where there is a relative status that's well-defined uh, and where everything is well-structured to one of quite, quite, quite a, a lot of ambiguity. And what I heard you say was that you took the, that militaristic approach of what's the mission? What are the tasks? What do I got to achieve? who do I serve as, as the answer to that? Yeah, I, I don't, <clears throat> I mean, I learned that 
framework, if you like, in the military, but I don't think it's exclusive to the military. No. Um, you know, I think that um, being thoughtful about what it is we're trying to achieve in any given task, whether that's, mm. you know, over the course of a day, a month, a year, it doesn't matter, you know, having an objective that everybody knows and understands, um, that people have, have bought into the creation mm. of that objective and feel as though they've had their voice heard, mm. that they, where they understand um, their particular contribution and why it matters. But also, as I touched upon earlier, that they, 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 they also understand that, um, you know, if that involves taking risk, it's kind of okay to do so, yeah. right? It's, it's hard to improve unless sometimes you push yourself beyond the boundaries that, that we think we all have. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so I think, you know, that, that framework for me, um, yes, came from the military. Um, but I also think it's, it's, it's a framework that you can, you can sort of pick up yeah. elsewhere. And I'd argue if you if you don't have a plan, if you don't have objectives, as an individual, it's hard enough to be effective, yeah. let alone when you lead teams. Yeah, I think what, what, what I'm hearing is that there is a framework there for people who find themselves going from a position of relative familiarity and certainty to one of less certainty and more ambiguity, that the answer in that transition is in having that framework to enable them to transition that that's what i'm taking from it it's really it's it's not about the military as much as it is about um they're also leveraging this framework because it works uh, before we get into your current role what i wanted to do is just go back a little bit further because you said something you said that a lot of your motivation is internal and that you're driven to be better sometimes sometimes that drive to be better comes from a, a some deep subconscious feeling that I'm not quite enough. And I'm just curious to know if that was something that you've experienced. And if so, where do you think it comes from? Um, I, I don't know that it comes from a feeling of not quite being enough. I, I um, But then again, I'm not sure I could precisely pinpoint where it, it comes from. I've, I've always I've always been competitive. I've, you know, right from an early age, I enjoyed competitive sports, um, both team-based sports where, that I really enjoyed. I've talked about rugby. I also played hockey. Um, I wasn't great at cricket, but I enjoyed cricket. Um, but I've also competed um, uh, as an athlete. I, uh, I did field athletics um, when I was young. I was relatively tall for my age. Uh, and so I did shot put, and then when everybody else grew taller than me, I had to change quite quickly because actually the the point of release, the height of release, uh, amongst other things for shot put, really does have a strong determinant on how far you throw the thing. So I had to change to hammer, which is you know the ball on the end of a big long wire, and you just spin round in a circle and hope the thing flies out through the gate and doesn't smash into the net because that's always embarrassing when that happens. Let alone if it bounces back and lands on you. Um, so I've always had that, that sort of drive, that innate instinct. Um, and sometimes that's been to be competitive with other people. Um, and, you know, I think like many people, I don't like to, 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 to lose. Um, but equally, it's, important, it's, it's as important for me to win in the right way as it is to win. Mm. Right? Win at all costs, I think, can be, you know, can be quite uh, damaging. But as I've got older, as I've gone on, 
it's been less about competing with others. Mm. But I think it for me, it's rationalized and refined itself in terms of just being that little bit, it's a it's a bit corny, but just trying to be the best that I can be, mm. given the skills and the talents and the experiences I've had, I don't have to be the best ever. I just need to be the best version yeah. of me. Do you find then that you're you're now trans you've transitioned that to a place in sales leadership where instead of competing with people, you're competing for people, your team, that you're there to comp help them compete for themselves. A hundred percent. As as I, you know, as I said, I think as a leader, I'm there to serve the team that that I'm fortunate enough to lead, um, not the other way around. And, and I think that that comes down to I often describe it as. Um, you know, I'm not there to tell the people that I work with how to do their job. I'm yeah. certainly not there to do their job for them, but I am there to help them do it more effectively than if I wasn't here. And yeah. sometimes that means getting out ahead of them and removing obstacles. Sometimes that's sitting down with them and working through step by step the challenges they face. I had an example of that this morning. Um, where one of the team called me up, they've got a particular challenge with a deal. Uh, and um, uh, we spent 15 minutes just brainstorming different ideas, different approaches. Uh, and that helped her get to a place where she's now got clarity of the of the next step. Yeah, but I didn't tell her what to do, right. And, and um, I, that wasn't the goal of the call. My goal was to help her assess the situation because she's way closer to the deal than I am yeah. and, and help her work through the options and how they might play out so that she could come to, uh, in this case, that, that, you know, the plan that she's going to yeah. go forward and execute uh, later on tomorrow and on Friday. Was that difficult moving from a position where you could command people what to do to one where it, it doesn't work the same way? Uh, not for me. Because whilst I think in the military, you have the ability to tell people what to do. Good leaders, at least in my book, inspire people. And my, the data sample's not huge here, right? It's one person, but you know, my experience is that when you motivate people, uh, when you, create an environment um, where they really want to lean in, you get this thing called discretionary effort, right? And, and that is the effort that people put in above and beyond the minimum, minimum required of them. Mm. It's when they make they, they, they take that extra initiative to, to do something that actually, you know, they didn't have to do nobody told them what and, and sometimes people don't even see what that that might be. Mm. But they go that extra step. And I think, you know, great leaders inspire their teams and their people to put that discretionary effort in. And for me, that's always been the, um, the kind of soft KPI that I look for. Mm. Are, are people really bought into where we're going? Do they feel they have a voice? Do they feel they can have a difference? And, and am I seeing that in their day to day actions? Yeah. Are they going above and beyond? Speaking of inspiration, who was it in your life that has inspired you the most? Sergeant Lyset, Sass Lyset, for sure. Um, I think that, you know, he, as I've said, uh, helped shape me uh, early in my career. 
Um, I also, you know, I, 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 I'm inspired by, and I've never met people like the Dalai Lama, right? A, a life of service. Uh, mm -hmm. And it, it kind of doesn't really matter to me whether you're religious or not. The fact that an individual could be so thoughtful about life uh, and, you know, um, can just bring a really interesting perspective, a different perspective. I think people like Barack Obama, I had a question actually, I did a, uh, an Ask Me Anything session with, uh, with uh, the EMEA team uh, a few weeks back and they asked me a similar question, you, who, who, what were the three people you'd have uh, uh, dinner with if you could have just three people from anywhere in history? Mm. And I chose Barack Obama, I chose the Dalai Lama and, uh, and I also chose Winston Churchill. Now, Winston Churchill actually is a, quite a provocative choice. Uh, and I think that, you know, the reality is that if we projected some of his values and beliefs mm. in today's society, some of those would be uncomfortable. Yeah. Uh, and, and I get that. But equally, I think when we look back, particularly to the Second World War and the leadership, the selfless leadership that, um, that he provided for the country, he was a man of that moment. Mm. And I think it is with that specific, very specific uh, perspective that I think I have a lot of, of respect for what he was able to achieve for, uh, for the UK and arguably, uh, you know, the, the, the democratic Western world. Does it worry you or bother you at all then when you see certain sections of society which didn't exist that long ago now feeling that the answer to their problems are to pull down statues of people like Churchill, not necessarily him, but people like him who were of their time and not understand the nuance. Um, I think to broaden your question slightly, um, I think we are stronger when we stand together as a society. Um, and part of that is understanding, um, history so that we don't make those same mistakes again. Uh, and that, you know, can be applied to how people of different color have been treated in the past, which is abhorrent. Um, but also it goes way beyond that, right? Sexuality, religion, all of those things. Uh, I think, um, you know, as society, we can learn from how peoples of you know with diversity have 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 suffered in the past um i also think you know it has a particular resonance for me around the problems that we face as a globe right whether it's global warming whether it's covid we as a, a species i think are stronger and are better able to um address those challenges the more we collaborate, the more we come together. And I am troubled by the way that nations are becoming broadly more nationalistic. Mm. I'm troubled at the prospect that the United, United Kingdom, having left Europe, may now fragment and may see Scotland depart the United Kingdom. Mm. Not because I have a particularly nationalistic or view, I just think that we're stronger when we come together as people, right? Across mm. our nations, across uh, the colors of our skin, across our religions, across our sexuality, 
and all the other things that 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 you know there is far more that unites us mm. than divides us yeah and i think we sometimes focus on what what divides us rather than what unites us i'm wondering how much of that though is down to people's innate inability to think critically and and maybe it's just because it's not taught in any schools where people are so easily influenced or so easily led by malevolent characters and there's always only a small number of them who have a particular agenda and what they'll do is they'll set up this bogeyman it could be the eu could be any you know there's there's any number of of bogeymen and it's like this bogeyman is out to get you and people swallow that hook line and sinker and there's no critical thinking and they see now with social media having replaced a lot of newspapers it's even more so because the newspapers are looking for clickbait they have to to survive and therefore they become more sensationalist i saw this only last week it was here in ireland we had 25 people leave hospital and five were admitted to me that's a net gain of 20 that's a great news story but no it's like worrying trend five new people admitted to hospital right and and and, and so you have that and then people read that without thinking it through and going to go hang on a second here what's the what's the story what's the the reality and I'm curious to know in your life experience uh, where you see that, where you see it going, and uh, but more importantly, how do you feel we could halt it, if if, if you agree in, in, at all, even that it's a problem. Yeah, um, I think that a, a lot of the way that society has developed over the last twenty or thirty years. And arguably probably longer than that, but my perspective is is limited to that sort of time period. So I'll comment on that, not on hundreds of years. Um, but I would argue that you know what I may have experienced over the last twenty or thirty years is a society that has become much more used to our every desire um, being immediately answered or fulfilled. Okay, so you know, crude analogies here, but if, if you want to know, I don't know, who won the 1966 World Cup? Um, hang on a second, hang on a second, hang on. I know this one, I, mean, I know this know one, that, right? I know this one, hang on, hang on. I'll come back and to you. You know why I'm mentioning it, because it's the last <laughs> time that England won it, right? Uh, not that I'm a football fan, but there we go. But But if you didn't know that, do you know what? It would take you about 10 seconds to pick up your phone to probably go to somewhere like Google to to learn that. Mm. And, and so, you know, that that thirst for knowledge has, can be immediately satisfied. You want to know whose song, who, what that song is that's playing in the restaurant, right? You get Shazam up and bang, you get that immediate answer. Tell you what, let's take that forward to, to how we consume food, right? Um, brands like Uber Eats and Deliveroo. You want to have a Chinese or an Indian takeaway or a Persian meal. If you're in one of the areas that they cover, you can probably have that delivered within half an hour, maybe even sooner than that. You want to buy certain goods, you know, with Amazon, you can certainly have it delivered in 24 hours, sometimes in some areas, you know, in central London within two hours. Right. And, and that, that, immediate satisfaction of desires, thirst for knowledge, food, whatever it might be, technology has enabled that. But I think it's also perhaps trained us in a certain way to look for quick fixes, immediate answers. 
And so what I would say is, you know, per your point about critical thinking, sometimes the quick answer is not always the best answer. Sometimes the best things in life, in your career, you have to put time and effort into, right? It, it's really hard to shortcut um, the knowledge you need to get to be effective as an account manager, as an SDR, as a sales rep, as a leader, right? Because actually the sum of those experiences help you get better at what you do. Same thing for playing a piano, right? It's very difficult to sit down there uh, and immediately master the thing. You have to put hours and hours of time into that. And maybe there's a few things that can accelerate it, but there are also some things that, that might look attractive shortcuts but may ultimately lead to a, you know, a, a, a more difficult um, or uh, uh, perhaps compromised outcome. Yeah, that's for sure. Actually, you're, you're, you're pointing out my piano dilemma where I got this, uh, this sheet music and it, to make it easier for you, it takes all of the sharps and flats and puts them in red. So you, it just, and it does, it speeds up, but also it, it, you miss out. There's just no question about it. And I see it as well in, you know, hobbies I have like photography where everything in that was designed to give you the picture, the instant or the back of the screen where before you'd, ha it's the delayed gratification of waiting and spending time on something. And uh, so I, I think, I think you're right about it. I think that's, that is a huge issue and uh, it's not, it's not reversing anytime soon. I would like to see maybe more in schools, people thought to question more. Yeah, and by the way, look, I think broadly a lot of that progress is great. I mean, it, it you know it, it can be truly uh, you know truly satisfying, uh, satisfying, but it does change perhaps how we might approach certain situations. Right, growing up, I learned my timetables by rote. I learned a lot of the facts. It, you know, schooling when I was at school was about filling your mind with all sorts of facts and figures. Um, I, I would argue that that's less important now, as you say, it's about those that, that ability to think critically. It's about the ability to know where to go, mm. to get the answers, to get the information, and then interpreting that information. And I think that definitely has helped propel us forward as a society. Mm. Uh, and I think it's a fascinating change, and it's been a very swift change that certainly my kids have experienced in terms of their education is wholly different to that that I, that I experienced just a couple of generations ago. Yeah. I think what we're seeing is, though, is this emerging tension, emerging tension between that, the desire to think critically and question things with sections of society, and a lot of that are, is, is in academia, is that there's an established narrative and that's what's accepted and anything else isn't. Which is, but that, that's all of the kettle of fish probably for another day. Tell me uh, a little bit about High Spot, um, what are your ambitions for it? So we're in a really interesting position. I've always enjoyed, you know, taking disruptive propositions to market. They, deep, you know, traditionally been technical um, uh, technologies in the SaaS space. Um, and if you think about where High Spot is and, and other vendors in this place, we're all about helping people like us, salespeople, be more effective in what we do every day, right? Get to our quotas more effectively, more quickly, more consistently. Mm. Um, and yet this thing called sales enablement, you know, it, it's, it's still an emerging category. 
right? There's there's still debate over exactly what what it you know what it is. Is it sales enablement? Is it revenue enablement? Right? Because the two are somewhat aligned, but also like a Venn diagram that you know you've got your overlap, but you also got some some areas of of, of difference there. Um, and so I think that you know what is clear to me as a sales leader, my job has been always been about trying to get ourselves to the number predictably, predictably scalability with a level of consistency. Um, and it's pretty clear to me that there's an opportunity for sales enablement platforms to do that, you know, to help arm our people on the front line and their managers with an understanding of what to know, say, show and do in a given situation to help them understand what good looks like, you know, um, in similar situations in the past, how have other people, um, particularly the high performers in their team, approached a particular topic, approached a particular conversation, and how can we help other people that maybe have less experience in that team model those behaviours, hopefully for a, an improved outcome. So the ambitions are pretty high. You know, we genuinely want to help change the way that millions of people work around the globe. Um, we genuinely want to specifically help salespeople get better at the jobs that they have because they are challenging, they are difficult. Um, and, you know, I think that's been brought into sharp relief, uh, relief with uh, the onset of COVID and the changes that that has driven across our industry. Uh, and by the way, I think those are changes that, that are here to stay. Um, I, I don't think we'll go back to precisely where we were before March of last year, um, uh, but also their managers, right? Helping their managers be more effective in how they coach and develop their people over time. Mm. I'm curious then, because the, the whole sales enablement area fascinates me, because you're right, how do you look at it? Or is it a case for sale, some sales enablement, it's all about training and coaching for others, it's about platform selection and tools, for example. Uh, it's my experience that People in general, not, not clearly not everybody, it's, this is an overgeneral comment, uh, will by default look for shortcuts, look for the easy way to do things, look for the template, look for the boilerplate. And what I'm curious about is where there, where the, where's the line between spoon-feeding people and conditioning them for success? Ultimately, um, I think the word you use, conditioning, is, is, is quite an important one. And it's quite an important principle, right? It's, um, and this goes back to, I guess, the principles, principles of situational leadership. Um, and, and how do you adapt how you work with somebody according to the experience and the knowledge that they have and somebody that is perhaps less experienced you might need to be a little bit more directive and actually, to use your words, spoon feed them. And that's okay, right? That, that might actually be quite appropriate. But over time, you, you, you know, I think um, it's important to move people away from being spoon, spoon fed so that they can start to apply the principles of what you've taught them, what you've helped them learn but apply it in a thoughtful, intelligent way. Because the problem with spoon feeding is um, 
you know, whilst there may be broad similarities between many conversations, no two conversations are identical. If we were to repeat our conversation uh, that we've had today along the same threads tomorrow, we would use different words. We would probably go off in different, um, uh, uh, down different uh, paths and tracks. Um, and I think it's the same in sales or, or account management or service, right? There are fundamental principles that, you, that, that one wishes to apply and one can learn those over time, but you need to apply them in the specific context of that conversation. And so when that comes back to enablement, I think there are some occasions when we do need to provide a model of what good looks like, whether that's a role play, a video, whatever it might be. But the ultimate game, right, the game changer is not having people simply regurgitate verbatim every single word. Actually, the ultimate game is people understand the story, that they understand the principles behind that narrative so that they can take those principles into a given situation and, and, and apply them in a thoughtful, intelligent and engaging manner. Yeah. It, yeah, you're right. It's 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 the give a man a fish, you feed him for a day. Teach a man a fish, you feed him for a lifetime. And, and I think to, to use your example earlier, in an environment where giving man a fish is 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 picking up the phone. Sorry, not even picking up the phone. It's taking your phone and sending a message to Uber Eats. It's it it's. I I think we have to work harder at giving helping people discover the importance, I don't want to say joy, is probably over-egging it, but the importance of actually figuring stuff out. Um, yeah, I, I, I'd agree, I'd agree yeah. entirely. Um, yeah. You know, there, there are certain principles, to, again, go, to go back to that messaging, but one of the most, um, one of the most exciting things that, that, that I think I get to see is how people take ownership of, of that message but then craft it in a way that is meaningful for them in a way that they can, they can bring in their experiences, their rich tapestry of experiences and apply that um, within, you know, within a given conversation. Mm. That's what true mastery is about, right? True mastery to go back to your piano uh, analogy is, is actually one day, um, you know, being such a master that actually you don't need that sheet music because yeah. you can just be in front of the piano in that moment applying everything you've learned to be able to play that particular piece or hey if it if that's your style maybe to to be a jazz uh, player with all the improvisation they do you know yeah. no sheet music there just yeah. three four guys and girls just jamming uh, and, and bouncing off each other yeah maybe that's again we'll add it to the list celebrating mastery is one of those things that we could do to uh move things along because i it, it's it's when mastery is replaced by tools then then mastery gets gets hurt as a concept and we we lose sight of how important it is um curious andy what you do in your spare time to relax and unwind um so i won't be surprised based on what uh, we talked about earlier that i try and stay fit um so i do a fair amount of open open water swimming i've always always enjoyed swimming not particularly good at it but you know, I love to go and splash around. Um, I've also, uh, when I was growing up, I enjoyed racing dinghies. 
dear, dear friend, lifelong friend of mine, we used to race fireball 17 foot two man dinghies. Uh, we used to race them around Chew Valley Lake and other places. Um, now, you know, I'm not so, not so sure I'd want to go doing that. Uh, now I'm in my fifties, but, um, I do enjoy sailing. And so that's sort of morphed for me into offshore sailing. So, uh, I've got my, uh, offshore skipper's license is something I did, um, just as a piece of personal development last year. Uh, I studied for that. I got qualified for that. Um, so now, um, you know, that's something that, that I'm hoping to, uh, pursue increasingly as time goes on beyond that, it's the usual friends, friends and families. So, uh, you know, that, that, that network has been super important over the last year. Um, but I'd be throwing my whole career. So friends, family, a little bit of fitness and, uh, a bit of sailing. Yeah. And with, with that sailing license, you may be able to do a little wine runs over to France now that the uh, GB is out of the EU. <laughs> Absolutely. Following uh, uh, all of the uh, important customs regulations. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're, you're a man for diplomacy. I, I, I've noticed that. <laughs> you actually display an, an inordinate uh, level of self-awareness. I don't know if anybody's ever said that to you before. I'm curious to know where it comes from. I don't know. Um, you know, at, at times in my career, I think people have encouraged me to look at my blind spots. The trouble with blind spots is you're blind to them. So it's like, go look at your blind spots. That's actually not the most helpful advice I've ever had. Um, but, but, you know, having said that, I, I know I've got blind spots and sometimes, you know, I need other people to help me with those. And one of the things that I've learned over time is that it's okay to go and ask for feedback. Um, it's actually really, really important, particularly when you lead teams to get that regular feedback. Um, and, and I think uh, I, when I was with Oracle, I, I was part of a leadership development program there that took me to uh, the Ross School of Business at the University of Michigan. Um, and I hadn't mentioned it before, but it's come into my mind now. You know, that was really formative uh, for me. It was a two week, uh, three week um, course where we learned about leadership. Um, and I think one of the things that was really reinforced for me there was um, when the Ross School of Business looked at um, leadership across the ages, there were common traits for, you know, what were deemed to be the best leaders. And one of those traits was vulnerability. And that um, awareness, you know, it's okay to, to be vulnerable. It's okay to say you don't have the answers. It's okay to ask for feedback because guess what? Feedback when it's given, when it's thoughtful is such a gift. It allows you to improve. It allows you to understand those blind spots that you might not otherwise know about. Um, so again, I'm struggling to tell you where that comes from. Um, it's probably a little bit of, uh, accidental discovery, which has then been reinforced through the impact that that's had. Um, but uh, no, that's very kind and generous. I, I try and be thoughtful in all that I do. Mm. Well, I think you also have to have a very strong ego. I don't mean big, I mean strong as in resilient and 
and with a sense of humility. I think that comes with that, that, that allows self-awareness to flourish. I think if you don't have that, you, you, feedback is too painful to seek it out. Therefore, you lose the gift of, of, of the feedback and therefore you don't develop the self-awareness. And I'm curious, you know, were you always like that? Were you always comfortable with hearing about flaws and areas to develop as much as you were about strengths? Candidly, no. No, I think, you know, I, I think um, certainly earlier in my career, because of this drive to want to be the best that I possibly could, um, you know, I can think of it circumstances where people genuinely were trying to be helpful and, and, and I probably didn't react in the same way that, that I would react now. Mm. But that's okay. You know, I, I think it's, it, again, it's about that self-awareness. It's, it's about understanding that um, just because people give you feedback, it doesn't mean you have to agree with it. Mm. But I think if you refuse to engage with it and at least explore it, you lose an opportunity um, to learn something about yourself that might be uncomfortable, mm. but equally something that might be transformational. So I think you, you, you used uh, the word humility, um, hugely important. Be humble, right? Good leaders are humble, they're open, they're transparent. Um, doesn't mean that you know we operate in a de democracy, doesn't mean that we shirk some of the difficult decisions. But I think the more you can get the views and the perspectives from other people, the better informed you are when you come to collaborative decisions or individual decisions. Yeah, I think that humility as well, it's easy to spot in people. It, I think it becomes evident pretty early on in engagements. And from my experience, it makes me want to follow them, which I guess is the definition of leadership. People want to follow you. Um, yeah, I think that's a really important part. Uh, as I said before, it's about, um, I think, providing an environment, creating an environment where people want to do great things and giving them their wings, right? And, and that's, that's one of the greatest privileges that, that, that I think we have as leaders. I can think of, you know, a number of people that I've worked with that, um, you know, whose careers have gone from example, from, from being an SDR, um, you know, one guy I, I, I remember hiring, he was a mechanic in a Porsche garage, um, brought him on as an SDR. He's now, uh, a second stroke third line leader uh, for a, uh, a large software company mm. and you know what he's absolutely incredible at what he did what he does uh, and it's nice that to think that I had some small influence and to help him along the way he he always had that innate ability mm. um, and I'm so I'm not laying, laying any claim to that but the mm. fact that you know um, that I spent some of my career with him is incredibly rewarding yeah yeah you know Andy it's, I hate to say this, we are running up on time against the buffers. I want to respect your time. Two quick things. One, I have to say this. Um, if you ever get tired of being a sales leader, you have a shoe-in job of being a late-night DJ. You have a wonderful, wonderful voice. You have this great timbre in your voice that would just... <laughs> just to ease the night in with a glass of wine is perfect absolutely perfect so if you ever want to kind of on the side maybe do a little bit of that you, you i can tell you now you've got a ready audience um you you talked earlier about people who influenced you and you mentioned the likes of churchill etc if there was a statue built in your honor with a plaque at the base of it what would you like it to say about you 
Uh, father, son, husband, friend, and colleague. Yep, I like it. It's really simple and to the point. I, when you said father, this is the, the <laughs> my upbringing. When you said father, son, in my head, I was going holy ghost. <laughs> <laughs> That would have been novel. <laughs> That's maybe a different type of statue. <laughs> I love it. I think it's been an absolute pleasure, a joy to talk to you today. It really has. You're, you're a fascinating character, and, and I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you so much for being my guest. Uh, I said to anybody listening to this, if you've enjoyed it a fraction as much as I have, please consider giving the podcast a review. It would be really helpful. Andy Champion, thank you so much for being my guest today. Paul, my absolute pleasure. Thank you. 